Well, here we are, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, it's the most important event uh, in all of human history. And there's a reason for that, because without the resurrection, we wouldn't have any hope for life after here. Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins, and in essence was a, a wiping slate of the clean, uh, wiping clean the slate rather, uh, of our sins. Uh, but that was just bringing us back to like a zero balance. It's the resurrection that gives us uh, the hope and inheritance of adoption as children uh, and all the future promises that God has for us. So they start off this morning, um, I just had a confession. Easter Sunday is probably the hardest day for me um, as a pastor uh, to preach a message for a couple of different reasons. Uh, the first one is, is this day, this message, this resurrection, his death and resurrection, um, is the entire foundation of our faith. Christmas is, is great. Christmas, like Jesus was born as a tiny little baby and like there's presents and trees and lights and, and he came down and, and that's easier. But, but Easter, Easter's the full weight of everything that we believe and everything that we base our entire lives upon. And so it's difficult in that sense to be like, how do I come up here and, and accurately present that? How do I come up here and, and give it the full justice of what Christ actually did for us. And, and it becomes weighty and hard. And the only thing that I can then turn to is the powers in his words, not mine. And all I can do is present this and trust that he's going to work in our hearts and our lives. And so in one sense, uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at these verses. And as we go through them, I'm fully confident that he will take these and apply these deep into our lives where we need them to work, where they need them to, to heal, where we need them to, to convict or, or bring about change in our life. Fully trust in that. The second reason um, why this is hard, uh, and I think it's hard for me and, and maybe hard for others as well, is that when I face this story of the resurrection and his price and everything that, that he did for me uh, in order to, to wipe the slate clean, to consider me to be holy, to consider me to be the righteousness of God, as, as I consider those very things, oftentimes uh, the enemy's right on my shoulder or I'm staring into a mirror and saying, but this hasn't changed. This hasn't changed. I still struggle with this. Life is still hard. Bad things still happen to me. And, and it becomes frustrating on that aspect. And so the second reason why this message is hard sometimes is because it's such a powerful declaration of what Jesus' life and death accomplished for us. And then it can be a struggle to like walk out in the fullness of that reality because it's easy to allow pragmatism or wounds that we go through or struggles that we have to creep in and, and allow for doubt to come in and, and cause this not to hold the power of the words of Christ. And again, I think the solution to that is the same as the first one. These are the words of Jesus. These are the words of Scripture. So therefore, this is true. And my trust is as I say this, the light of this truth will cast out the darkness, the doubts, 
the condemnation and shame from our enemy, that we stand on the truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We stand on the truth that even though we're here and now in this earth and difficult things still happen, what is true is true and will not change. And he gives us the strength to endure. So I reflect upon that. We don't have this. It was while we were singing. Uh, the verse came into my mind in John chapter 17. Uh, and this is on the night that he was betrayed. This is while he was having supper um, with them where he instituted communion before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and was arrested. Uh, but in John chapter 17, uh, he's praying for himself and then he prays for the disciples. And he gets to a point here um, around verse 14 where he says, I've given them your word. In other words, he's teached the gospel to them. He's shown the truth to them. Um, I've given them your word, and the world hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them, or heading towards the cross for them, so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. And so there's just this recognition of Jesus saying, like, I'm praying for my disciples, the ones that I'm, I'm heading to the cross for in order to pay my body, to spill out my blood, that they might be redeemed so that there can be a unity with them for all of eternity, that, that mankind can be reconciled to God, that death and sin will be finally destroyed. And yet what he's saying then is, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but rather I'm sending them into the world. Is this acknowledgement of even though death is conquered, sin is conquered, the battle is won, Jesus is risen, we still face difficulty. This is what he was praying for the disciples. Most of the disciples, uh, the apostles that were following him at that point, I was just reading through some stuff um, this weekend, out of the 12, uh, only John most likely uh, did not die a violent death. The rest of them ended up being martyred in, in horrendous ways. And, and so what Jesus is even saying here before he heads to the cross is this fact that something supernaturally spiritual is going to happen. You're going to be fundamentally changed. Salvation is going to come into your life. You're going to have a hope beyond this world. But you're still going to face difficult things. And I think sometimes in our mindset, and partially created by our culture and our pursuit of, of comfort, our pursuit of fulfilling our own desires, that we fall into this trap that in order for everything to be good and well and to have joy in my life, things need to be going smoothly. That God needs to protect me from going through difficult and hard things. And yet what Jesus is saying here is I'm sanctifying you for the truth. I'm sanctifying for you for all of eternity, but you're still going to live in a fallen world. Bad things, difficult things are still going to happen. You're still going to have to go through these. But the hope is now we get to walk through them together. And so I bring this up because I think it's one of the two difficulties of, of this particular message. As we look at these words about Resurrection Sunday and all that Jesus accomplished for us, doubts can creep in, especially as we try to live it out practically in a day-to-day -day, with our families and our jobs, with sin and temptations, all of these other things. 
And we need to stand upon this truth because Jesus prayed for us to be able to do this and to be sanctified by this truth. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to head into the message this morning and look at the truth of what the resurrection accomplished for us. Father God, we come before you, and I just want to acknowledge um, there is nothing that I can say out of my wisdom, my ability, that makes any difference. It's only what you say. Lord, I pray that as we go through these words, that this truth would be the seed planted in our hearts. And that when we judge ourselves, when we look into that mirror, and if we have any thoughts that are contrary to what you accomplished on the cross, uh, I pray that it would be broken in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that we would walk in that truth. And Lord, I pray that when we face difficulties within this world, that it would not cause doubt, but rather it would cause us to run to you and to anchor ourselves more deeply into this truth that carries us through all things by your power and by your blood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, the, the concept of resurrection uh, is something that is fairly easy to grasp. Somebody was dead, their, their heart wasn't beating, uh, and now they're undead, like their heart's beating again. Uh, but not in the sense of a zombie, right? So, so like you look at all the different zombie culture and movies and all of it is a distortion of the resurrection. Every single aspect of it. Jesus was dead, came back to life, but in a resurrected body that was now transformed, now that was something that was no longer merely of earth, but a blending of spirit and his body he was able to, to walk through walls. There's passages within Corinthians that talks about how, how our bodies are simply a, a seed and that the seed needs to die in order for something new to grow out of it. And so when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when it comes to our own resurrection that is purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ, we come to a resurrection. We will no longer have this same body, the, the same aches and pains that we might have when we wake up in the morning, the same diseases the same heading towards death, all of that will be gone in the resurrection. All of it will be made glorious. In fact, we call them, we refer to them as glorified bodies in the resurrection. And yet when we look at stories of people who become undead or resurrected from the dead within common culture, it's a complete distortion because it's always ugly, it's always gross, it's always seeking more death. It's always causing more pain. It's always spreading and it's always unwanted. The exact opposite of what the promise of the true resurrection is. And it's a way that our enemies try to distort this fact and to, to cause it to be something that's glorified and pursued and multiple movies are, are made out of it. And, and all of it is this distortion of what is actually promised to us, what our actual hope is in this. To be truly back to receive somebody that has been dead back as they were back better than as they were and I think it's safe to say that that nobody here has experienced that nobody's been resurrected that I know of um, and and nobody's seen somebody resurrected to this point um, 
But I think most of us have experienced death. And we experience the, the pain, the sadness, the loss, and the seeming finality of death. We're somebody that we've loved, somebody that we've cared for, that, that we've been around, that we've celebrated Easter with before, is now gone. And it's painful. Our children have experienced this. And if it hasn't been with a family member, uh, it can be with experience of death with pets. My daughter, love her absolutely. She names everything and cherishes everything. And we have like little guppies in a fish tank and every single one of them is named. And every single one of them is this absolute tragedy when it doesn't live. I, we have like little graves in our garden. <laughs> that are like set up for each one of, of these. And, and I love it and I cherish it. And this, there's this aspect of, of her mourning and there's times where I kind of think that it's silly, but then I think about this concept that, that death is a result of sin. That's why death hurts us so much. Has anybody had a, a loved one that is a believer and had the hope of heaven? I have. Was it still painful when they died? Was it still really hard when they died? Why? They're with Jesus now, right? So we should feel fine. No. Like even when Lazarus died, Jesus wept. The reason for this is that because human beings were designed for eternity... And this is the reason why death is so tragic, so painful, so unreal at times, because it's a result of the curse of sin. It's, it's not the way that God designed things to be in life. And so that's why it's perfectly acceptable if we have a close family member that, that has died, and we know that they're with Jesus now, we're still broken, because it's not an experience that God designed us to have. That experience of brokenness over death is a complete result of the fall and sin and death entering through the world because sin. This is why it's so painful. This is why it feels so wrong because it was never meant to be and it came into the world because of sin and this sin caused the curse that results in death and brokenness and pain and suffering. In order to break this curse from sin, Jesus came to the earth willingly. Came into the world because of Adam and Eve, two humans that were without sin, but yet chose of their own free will to rebel against God. And in that, all mankind has inherited sin from that moment. And in that, a separation from God of a beautiful communion that Adam and Eve had I continued on for generations until Jesus, at the appropriate time, came to the earth in order to live a perfect and holy life without sin. And in that perfect and holy life without sin, to suffer and die though he was innocent. To do it in your place, to do it in my place, freely and willingly, and scriptures even tell us, with the joy set before him. Not joy over the pain and suffering that he was about to go through, but, but rather joy because it meant that doing that would mean that we could spend eternity with him. We see this reflected in families, right? When parents will willingly suffer for the benefit of their children. 
Families that may not have food take care of the children, the ones that they love. We see it reflected. This is what Jesus died in order to pay for these sins, which is very important, to, to clean the slate with God for our, the forgiveness of our sins. But even more important than that is the resurrection. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting verse 12. Uh, if Christ or if Jesus is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? Because if there's no resurrection, then not even Jesus has been raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Recognize what Paul is saying here. If Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, it does not matter if he died to pay for your sins. Because that was the system that was happening from the Old Testament through the entire time. If you sinned, something died, an animal, in your place in order to pay for that sin. But as soon as you would sin again, you would need to sacrifice another animal over and over and over again. And so Jesus comes and he lives this perfect life, dies in our place in order to break the sin and curse as one without sin paid the penalty for Adam and Eve and for all of us. In order to bring about the forgiveness of sins. In order to bring us to a place of, of cleanness before God. But then what happens as soon as we sin again? It's the resurrection that changes everything. That's why Paul is saying, your faith is in vain if Christ isn't raised from the dead. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins because you've continued to sin. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. But if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is... Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. This is that aspect where Jesus had to die, but he also had to be resurrected. So that as we die to our sins, we have the hope of walking in a newness of life, not just having it wiped clean and then trying to do the best in our own strength to never ever sin again. Imagine if that was our life as Christians. If that was our faith. How terrifying would that be? To come to a point of salvation and if we proclaimed, all right, Jesus died for your sins, so if you confess your sins, if you repent of your sins and believe that he died for them, they're all wiped away. Everything in your past has been wiped away. Now be really careful, because if you sin again, that's all you get. Because we're not sacrificing anymore, and Jesus isn't coming back anymore. How terrifying would that be? To walk and like, oh, I, can't, I can't sin. Okay, well maybe I can avoid those, those big ones. Oh, but what about coveting? Or lying? Or not trusting in things besides Jesus. Like all of these things start to creep in. And all of them, even the smallest little thing, is enough to build sin in our lives again. But the truth is, he was raised from the dead. 
And because he was raised from the dead, he paves a way for us. In Romans chapter 6, we see in verse 3. Are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be a slave to sin. Since a person who has died is free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. What this verse is saying is that if we go into a spiritual death, we die to sin the way that Jesus has died to sin. It's not talking about a physical death in this point. And because it's not talking about a physical death, neither is it talking about physical baptism. That can be confused sometimes where you look at this and like, okay, if we're baptized into Jesus Christ, um, all right, we need to have water baptism in order to be saved. So people will take a look at this passage and that's what they come away with. But what it's also saying is that you have to die in order to be free from sin and, and nobody is sitting there and holding somebody under the water until their heart stops so that we can pull them out of the water to symbolize a resurrection and give them CPR or, or pray that their heart restarts so that they come back to life in order to accomplish what this passage is talking about. What this passage is saying is a spiritual death. It's a dying to ourselves, our own identity, our own kingdoms, our own preferences, our own desires, our own priorities. It's coming before Jesus Christ and saying, I've tried doing all these things on my own. I cannot do it in my own strength. There's no way I can save myself. There's no way I can earn forgiveness. There's no way that I can earn love. All I can cut them and do before you is, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Save me. My life is now yours. You are my Lord. You are my King. I willingly set aside everything that I held as my identity before you. I die to that. And now I live for you. That is the spiritual death that takes place. And this resurrection into this newness of life that happens through salvation. It is the transformation that's brought about by the resurrection of Jesus. That those who have placed their faith in him as Lord have been made spiritually alive and dying to self. We can't do this within our own strength. To sit there in our physical bodies and be like, okay, I'm a spiritual being now. Woo! Some people may try that and we look at them like they're crazy. But it's something that has to supernaturally take place. To the point where we experience what Galatians 2.20 says, that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Spiritually crucified with him. I no longer live is the mentality that we're called to have. And yet I think we struggle with this at times. 
We struggle with this because we're like, okay, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been forgiven of my sins. But then we still want to try and grab the wheel and control our life. We want to hold on to some of our priorities and preferences and desires and actions. And so we have this struggle, this war that happens within us with our past desires and our past way of living along with the new way that Christ has raised us from the dead spiritually in order to walk in. Or we continue to act as though it's our own actions that continue to wipe the slate clean instead of trusting in him alone. But again, it has to happen spiritually And it's a fundamental change in our life. John 3, verse 5, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, I truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. And whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. There is a supernatural, God-ordained transformation that takes place when we come to the point of salvation in the repentance of our sins and our confession of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. At that moment, Jesus says that we are reborn, both of water and by spirit. Nicodemus, as he's talking with him, he's asking, like, how is that even possible? Can I go back to my mom and say, all right, let's go through this again? Because he wasn't grasping what Jesus was talking about. And I think we struggle to grasp. Well, we look at this passage and we say, well, Nicodemus was silly for thinking this. But at the same time, Jesus is saying, you are born again. You are fundamentally different. You are no longer merely human, separated from God for all of eternity. You are now Flesh and spirit and in communion with God for all of eternity. Ephesians tells us that God himself, as the Holy Spirit, comes to live within us. That's how connected we are. That we are absolutely, completely different than what we used to be. We can look at all kinds of different illustrations for this. And sometimes I've heard of the illustration of like we have a caterpillar that turns into the butterfly. And so we have the caterpillar, the little wiggly, squishy thing that goes around and eats all kinds of leaves and then spins itself into a, it's not a cocoon, a chrysalis, right? And, and, and it's really cool. Like if you look at the monarch butterfly, you've got this yellow and black and white thing that just eats and eats and eats and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger Uh, and all of a sudden it goes into this chrysalis and the chrysalis actually has like flecks of gold on it. I don't know if you ever really looked at it but it's like this pale green and and ringed around the top of it are all these like little like shiny gold speckles that looks like actual ring of, of gold. Really cool. Then you watch that happen for a while and it starts to shake and quiver and all of a sudden a a butterfly comes out. And we look at that as this aspect of transformation, right? Like, Like here's this wormy thing that becomes something that can fly and soar and actually makes this amazing journey down to Mexico. Really cool, right? So so that must be like a great representation of what happens when we're spiritually dead and then we become spiritually alive and and, and it's not 
the perfect example of that. Because the caterpillar is alive. And it just changes into something that's different. A, a better representation of the transformation that happens when we are born again in Jesus Christ is if we would take a rock from the bottom of a river and that rock turns into a butterfly. Something that is dead, that, that has no life, no pulse, no hope. It's just there. And it becomes alive and glorious and flying around. That's what Jesus does to us at the point of salvation. Because of his resurrection. That's what he has done for us. And this new status is absolutely pivotal in our lives because it then makes us new eternal spiritual beings with a new identity, with new priorities, with new preferences to walk out in our life. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 puts it this way. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we've known Jesus from a worldly perspective, now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled to us through, uh, to himself through Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And he's committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Jesus' behalf, be reconciled to God. Be forgiven in sins. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What he's saying here is at the point of salvation, you are no longer to consider yourself as a human, but a redeemed human. A human that is now considered to be the very righteousness of God. Which is an astounding thing to say, and no one of us would ever make that claim for ourselves, but Jesus Christ is saying this. The Holy Spirit is inspiring this. That because of his death and resurrection... For those of us that have this new life, we're no longer simply human, but we are redeemed humankind, men and women, made in the image of God, indwelt by God himself, considered to be the very righteousness of God because of the work that Jesus Christ did, and we should no longer look at ourselves from an earthly perspective. And yet we struggle to do that every single day of our lives. Because it's so easy. It's, the physical world is so tangible to us. Our feelings and our emotions are so tangible to us that we can allow those to overshadow this truth that we're no longer to look at ourselves in a worldly perspective, but rather to look at ourselves as the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. This new status, again, absolutely pivotal in our lives because the power that's at work through the Holy Spirit in us is that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to live now and forever. So then the question that pops up is, where do you need the most help in your life? What is the most difficult thing that you're going through right now? And each person in this room is going to have a different answer to that question. 
And they're going to have a different feeling of how it's been going and how it will go. Some of us have hope. Maybe some are really tired of trudging through the same thing. Or maybe some tragedy or great hurt has been done. And you're struggling and reeling from that. The truth is that God knows everything that we're going through and that he has the help in each and every one of those circumstances. That the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in each and every one of those circumstances. This is where I mentioned before, sometimes it's really hard to accept because it feels like, where is God? Why didn't he stop this? And those doubts can start to creep in. But remember, he said, I don't pray that you take them out of the world because I'm sending them into the world. We just read a passage where we're called to be that ambassadors, these testimonies of God's work and life transforming us. And the truth is that where we want God's help will not always go the way that we think it should go or the way that we think it should be. Ephesians chapter 1 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Paul is praying this for the church in Ephesus. Now, the church in Ephesus went through a period of persecution because of Paul's preaching. He went through and he preached to the point where they were giving up their, their magic books and they were burning them and the silversmiths who were making idols were kind of going out of business. And so they all kind of like rose up in order to, to riot against the proclamation of this gospel. And so this persecution was happening. And no doubt there were Christians there at that time saying, but this is the truth. Like, why are we going through this difficult search? Why is God allowing this persecution to take place? And part of Paul's response, or the, the Holy Spirit-inspired response, was a prayer that they might truly understand the hope that they have is not just for here and now, because we still live in a fallen world, bad things still happen, but that our hope is we walk with him through that, that, that the very power, the immeasurable greatness of his power that was worked when Jesus was raised from the dead is now at work in our lives through these difficult circumstances, through these painful circumstances. Do we acknowledge this? Regardless of how it feels in the moment, regardless of our frustration to acknowledge the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in my struggle with this sin or that sin. That the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in my marriage, in my job, in the way that I approach finances. Do I believe that it's at work? And then do we cooperate with that? Because as we cooperate with that, there's going to be things that he may ask us to do that make no earthly sense. But remember, we're no longer to consider ourselves in an earthly way. But as citizens of heaven, with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Doesn't mean that every single circumstance is going to turn out in reconciliation. 
or be pain-free. But what it means is we walk with him through that and that power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you as long as you submit and cooperate to it instead of holding on to the old mindset, holding on to the old priorities, holding on to the way that you think things should be or how you want them to go. And this takes effort. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 20 says, this is not how you came to know Christ, assuming that you heard about him, were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. In other words, our priorities, our preferences, the things that we want to go, that we want them to, the way that we want them to go, are deceitful. Because they're all based out of an earthly mindset and our own fleshly desires. It takes this active taking off this way. Verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Romans chapter 12 talks about do not be conformed to the world, but allow your minds to be transformed. It's this active process that we need to be able to submit to because in submitting to this is the only way that we have freedom through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces are looking at a mirror in the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the promise and the inheritance of salvation. That the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead works within us and transforms us from glory to glory. That in the Spirit there is freedom. This is the hope and answer that we have to the weight of this world. That if we hold on to our old preferences, our old strengths, trying to do things in our own wisdom, our own mindset, we'll feel buffeted about because we're trying to do things according to an earthly way when we're no longer a citizen in an earthly way. We are citizens of heaven. Ephesians chapter 2 or 1 says that we're currently seated with him in heavenly realms. That is the truth. And if we try and do this in the old way, it'll be awkward and it'll be itchy. I, I was even thinking today of this, this illustration and I just didn't have the courage to do it. I was going to come up here and do communion and then during uh, worship, I was going like head and back and like shave, like shave my beard. Kind of like in this illustration of like this newness of being completely different. Um, although I've been told me wearing a suit and tie is accomplishing that already. Uh, a little bit. Um, and, and then I was going to have this other illustration of like, okay, now I have this clean-shaven face, but maybe I want to go back to the old way of having a beard, and then I was going to put on like this really awkward, like, fake beard. And how weird would that look, right? I just didn't have the courage to do it, and I kind of like the way the beard is right now, so... But the point is, if I would have shaved and then put on a fake beard and acted as though it was my real beard, how weird would that be? How awkward would that be? Both for me and for you. 
It's the same way in the spirit. If we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, we're citizens of heaven, his adopted children, sons and daughters of the Most High. His Holy Spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, at work within us, and then we try and go back and live according to earthly wisdom and earthly ways. How silly, how awkward and ineffective is it? We've been transformed absolutely, fundamentally by His Spirit. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is transforming us from glory to glory. God's Spirit is at work. The power of the resurrection is at work in our lives, in our marriages, in our work at school, in our interaction with family and finances, entertainment, where we're struggling with sins and our pride in our anger, in our fear, in our shame. And we will find difficulty facing all of these things if we continue to try and do it in our own strength. But if we do it, walking in step with the Spirit, even if difficult things still happen, even if things still break, we walk in full confidence of we walk with Jesus Christ. And we are alive in Jesus Christ. And the promise of Romans chapter 8 that he will use all things for the good of those who believe in him and are called according to his purpose, that is where that verse finds fulfillment. Is if we're walking in step with him according to the power of the resurrection instead of according to our strength and our wisdom. As we pursue this and trust the work of the Holy Spirit, we receive the promise that this transformation will happen. Philippians chapter 1. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. This is the promise guaranteed by God and not dependent on our own actions. This is what we trust in. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, and his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, I thank you for the truth and the power of everything that you did for us. We struggle to live according to that truth at times, but it does not change the truth. I pray and I know and I trust that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we are able to walk in a new identity, fully anchored in you, regardless of circumstances. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us here today, in the areas that we struggle to walk in this truth, I pray that you bring healing and a renewed sense of trust and gratitude for all that you've done. A new sense of hope and the power of the resurrection at work in our lives. And Lord, I pray for those who are here today that may not know you, that may not have this salvation. I pray that as I have pointed to this truth, I trust that it's created a desire and longing to have this hope, to have this freedom, to have this peace that is not possible in simple human strength, but only through your death and resurrection. I pray that you would draw them and that they would have the courage to die to themselves 
and to follow you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you for this and we celebrate your resurrection today because it's the greatest gift that you've given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.